we all turn to 1 Samuel 12, and I'm going to read from verse 1. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me, and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and grey, and my sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these, I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. And Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought them, brought your forefathers up out of Egypt. Now then, stand here, because I am going to confront you with the evidence before the Lord, as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your fathers. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your forefathers out of Egypt, and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. So he sold them into the hands of Caesarea, the the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned. We have forsaken the Lord. We have served Baals and Asterites. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel. He delivered you from the hands of your enemies on every side, so that you live securely. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Amorites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now he is the king you have chosen. The one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. And if you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commandments, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commandments, his hand will be against you as it was against your fathers. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call upon the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called upon the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away from useless idols. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, And I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. 
Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. And now Josh is going to come and speak to us. Great, thanks James. Thanks for leading all the the young people as well. And uh, and, and to have a band here to lead us in singing and and praise and worship. So I really appreciate all your help. Well, we're in the, the middle of a big series in 1 Samuel. And we've been going through this life of the prophet Samuel and the people that he met. First we saw him as a child and then we saw him anointed king, Saul. The last time we were in this, cha- in this book, we, we saw a great victory that King Saul won over all their enemies. And we come now to chapter 12 and there's a bit of a break in what seems like the, the narrative of 1 Samuel. And we get this big speech that Samuel gives and it's it's often called his farewell speech, although he's around still for many other chapters afterwards. But it's a big sort of rousing speech that he gives to all the people. And he, I, he pauses here in this chapter to reflect, in a way, on, on this pattern of behavior that Israel seemed to have got themselves caught into. And the pattern is sort of like a big merry-go-round. They, they keep going round and round and round on this continual cycle of, of behavior. Just before Christmas, uh, we took our family down to, to the valley and we saw the, the lights being, being turned on for Christmas. And, and down there at one end of the, of the high street was a, a big merry-go-round. Or actually it was a very small merry-go-round. It's only about sort of two meters across. It got into the back of a trailer and, and my kids all jumped on it and for a donation they could go around a few times. And uh, I didn't quite get why kids love these sort of things so much. It's so small you can either have a, I think it was a horse or a bus or a, a motorbike to sit on and you'd go around about two minutes and then you'd jump off again and the poor guy running it seemed a bit depressed to do the same thing again and again as shouty, noisy kids jump on and then run around and around and then off they get and the next lot come on. You see the co-op one side, you go around, there's the train tracks and there's the co-op again and there's the train tracks and, and that's all you did and then you're off again and the sort of, the cycle that you go around Children love it, it's a bit amusing. But when you are a whole nation, when you are, you know, a group of people trying to follow the king of the whole universe, you see that these people are also stuck on a similarly dismal merry-go-round. Only it's no fun at all. And the pattern they're on going round and round is this tragic cycle of behavior. And we see, we see Samuel highlight different points of this merry-go-round that they seem to be stuck on. And the passage is actually very sober because he's trying to make a very serious point that the cycle they are trapped on will only lead to disaster. So the first five verses of of the chapter, we're going to see Samuel tries to defend himself and he just asks them. He says, have I been a bad leader? Have I ever taken any of your animals? Have I ever done anything against you? Testify against me. And they say, no, you've been a great leader. You've never taken anything of ours. You're, you're excellent. You're a godly prophet. But this question is left hanging in the air. And it's not asked explicitly. But the question is, well, why did you ask for a king? Why did you want another leader to lead you? And then the next few verses, from verses 6 to 11, God now comes into the dock. And, and Samuel begins to show what God has done for the people of Israel, and he brings evidence against them. You see, the very last verse of chapter 11, do you see there? This is what we didn't read, but last time, the very last verse says there was this great celebration, that the enemy had been defeated as a great victory, and the people are all celebrating, and then we get our chapter. And in our chapter, 
we see that God has actually seen this pattern before. And he knows probably what's going to happen as they go round and round in the same pattern. And so verses 6 to 11, Samuel brings evidence that's going to bring the people down from their lofty celebrations. And the speech is probably one of the most powerful speeches of his whole life Samuel's going to give. So verse 7, he says, Now then, stand here. I am going to confront you, Israel, with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. And he shows them this pattern, the cycle that they're trapped in. And it starts way back in Egypt. It says, after Jacob entered Egypt, they cried out to the Lord for help. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought you and your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And so he sold them into the hands of Sisera, dot, dot, dot. And then the story continues. And so Samuel shows them, just in the short, small snapshot, there are four views that this merry-go-round will see as they go round and round. And the four views are this. Firstly, some great disaster happens to the people. Firstly, they were enslaved in Egypt. Later on, enemies would come and oppress them. The second view they see as they go round is that they cry out for help. Lord, Lord, rescue us from our enemies. Rescue us from slavery. Firstly, God sends a, a man called Moses and his brother Aaron. And that's the third view. A rescuer is sent. And God delivers them, usually in some spectacular way, to show that he is a God worth trusting. He's a God worth following. And the people respond well. They say, we're going to follow this God. He rescues us. He parts the seas for us. He defeats armies ten times bigger than ours. But the fourth view on this merry-go-round is that they end up forgetting their God and all the great things he has done. And they go around to the start again. God sends some act of discipline, perhaps an army, to oppress them once more so that he would call them back to himself. And around and around they go again and again, repeating the same pattern. There's disaster. They cry out for help. God sends a rescuer. But then they forget the Lord again. And so they go back to the beginning. Round and round they go. And Samuel reminds them of a few, a few more of these occasions. There's a, a man called Sisera. He was a king. And you can see his story back in Judges chapter 4. This king, he oppressed Israel for 20 years. He had a huge army, it says. There were warriors, 10,000 strong. And they oppressed the people of Israel. And so Israel cried out for help, as they always do. And God sent a man called Barak. He's mentioned in verse 11 of our chapter. And Barak, with the help of a lady called Deborah, they defeated this mighty army. It was a great act of God. And King Sisera, he ends up with a tent peg through his temple. A very memorable end to the spectacular deliverance that God sent for his people. What an unforgettable way for the enemy to be defeated, you'd think at least. But sure enough, the people on their circle going round and round forget these great acts that God does for them. So verse 10, they cry out once more to the Lord. We've sinned. We've forsaken the Lord, they say. We've served the Baals, the Ashtoreths, these idols of the neighbors. Lord, deliver us and we will serve you again, they say. Give us a second chance. And God does. This blows my mind. Why does God keep giving the people a second chance? A third chance, a fourth chance, round and round again they go, and God still has mercy. He won't reject his people. 
So Samuel wants to step back and to show them this pattern, this cycle that they're trapped in. And now where they are in the story, they're, they're at it once more. He knows what's going to happen. But this time the stakes are even higher because they've asked for a king. For all this time, God has been their king. They've been ruled under what's called a theocracy. Theos, meaning God, the Greek word for God. And God has been their king. We, we live here in what's called a democracy. Demos is, is the Greek word for people. So we're ruled by the people. And normally that goes quite well at the moment, not so well. But generally, democracy gives everybody a say. But what the people wanted here was not a democracy or a theocracy, but they wanted a monarchy, which is where there's a monarch, a king, a family who would rule over them for generation after generation. Because that's what all the other nations had. That's what everybody around them had, and they thought that's the way to do life. But the passage here shows us how much of a rejection, how much of a rebellion that is against the Lord their God. See, God was their king. But remarkably, God allows this to happen. And we'll see throughout the story of the Bible how God redeems all these failures, these rebellious acts of his people, to be able to bring about his purposes. And because they rejected God as their king, an earthly line was set up, But one day God would send another king into that line and redeem all these sinful acts of his people. And that is in the Lord Jesus. But to show how serious this rebellion was, we see in our passage this great miraculous act of God to show them exactly what he thought of their actions. So in verse 16, you'll see Samuel says, Stand still. See this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest right now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing he did in the eyes of the Lord your God when you asked for a king. See, their rebellion is so serious. God will show them how serious their actions were. So picture the scene. It's the height of summer. The fields are full of of wheat and the season's crops. They've already begun to collect them. They've been, they've been cutting them down and, and bundling them up into great big sheaves. And then when they do this, they need to wait for a, a long dry patch for, in order for the, the wheat to dry out so then they can thresh it on the floors and, and gather all the grain. And so they're looking forward to the harvest. Maybe it was a bumper year. They're going to start to feast on the fruit of their labor and then store what remains for the winter ahead of them. And so that's where they are. There are piles of wheat and big bundles all around them. And yet Samuel stands in the midst of them and says, watch what the Lord your God is going to do. Verse 18 says, the Lord sent thunder and rain. And the result, we can assume, was catastrophic. It doesn't spell it out for us exactly what happened. But it's clear that this was a devastating day for the people. Because they are left in awe of God and they are begging for mercy after that day. These harvests, no doubt, were destroyed by this freak storm the Lord sent. Perhaps the fields were flooded and all their food rotted and washed away. Perhaps there was a lightning strike and it caught fire and burnt up. We don't know. But the end result was that they were left crying out to the Lord for mercy, for a second chance once more. Lord, we're on this round, this roundabout, merry-go-round, going again and again on a cycle. Lord, help us, save us from this trap we're in. So what's it going to take to get the people off this ingrained habit of behavior, of discipline, and then crying out for mercy 
And then a rescuer comes, but then they forget the Lord once more. How will they get off this roundabout? Well, at the end of Samuel's speech, there's a common refrain. And he says it three times very, very similar, in very similar ways. And so we know that this is a very important thing he's about to say to them. And his answer, really, is not rocket science. I think sometimes we'd like a silver bullet, you know, something that's going to set us free from the, the sinful habits we find ourselves in, some magic trick that will just solve all our problems. And yet Samuel says the answer is actually very simple. And yet at the same time, it also reveals to us how, how seriously sick our hearts are and how much help we need. And so in verse 14 is the first time Samuel gives them an answer. He says, if you fear the Lord... And if you serve and obey him, do not rebel against his commands. And if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. That's the message. Very simple. Fear God and serve and obey him. Fear God, serve and obey him. And so he says it again in case you missed it. Verse 20. He says, do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they're useless. Do you see what he says there? He says it again, serve the Lord. Don't run after the things of the world, so fear God, is the implication. And then the third time, verse 24. Look at that with me. Verse 24, he says, be sure to fear the Lord, and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he's done for you. Again, you see the three things. You fear the Lord, you serve him, remember all that he's done for you. Now that last little phrase, there's a lot of that going on in our passage, remembering. See, when you're on a merry-go-round, you go round and round, you get dizzy, you see the same thing again and again, you almost forget what's on there. But God, he wants us to know and to remember all his righteous acts, because he's never failed Israel, and he will never fail you. So Samuel urges the people to reflect on the past. Remember what he's done. Has he ever not rescued you from your enemies? When you've cried out to him, has he ever just abandoned you? Verse 22, in the middle of our passage, is the center of all these instructions. And it's why we're called to fear and to serve and to trust the Lord. It says in verse 22, For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people. Because the Lord is pleased to make you his own. So God, he reminds Israel here that it was his pleasure. He was pleased to show favor to this one particular family. So that through them, in time, the whole world might come to know the blessing of a relationship with God. It was his will. He was pleased. It was his choice. He delighted to reveal himself to us through them. And therefore, for us today, because of Jesus, who is the true Israel, verse 22, it can be said of you and I here tonight. Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise to bless the whole world. He was not rejected by God, but he is now glorified and he is our king. Now, our vision verse that we've chosen for the year as a church reminds us of this magnificent truth. That because of Jesus, we are a chosen people. We are a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation, God's special possession, that we may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You're chosen. You're not rejected. 
but. Now this is a big but. That doesn't give us the freedom to live life as we please. As if life is just some jolly merry-go-round and round and round we go for another ride. Do you ever find yourself in some sort of vicious cycle like that? Trapped in some perpetual ring of rebellion against God? Maybe enslaved to some sin whose claws it can't seem to get out of you? You're trapped, it seems. For Israel, they kept turning to, to idols, to false gods. But when you hear that word idol, I don't know what goes through your mind. We don't really get in our sort of 21st century mindset what are idols? We don't hear about them so much today. I was in a Sunday school class, and the teacher once brought in this face mask from some tribe in South America that they had visited. And he said, look at this idol. Isn't it terrible? We mustn't worship idols. And that was basically the point of the lesson. And I was a bit confused. It's just a mask. But this, what's so terrible about that? You know, My kids love to dress up in superhero costumes. What's the difference between these things? And we hear idols and think, well, maybe it's like that. You know, some statue, some primitive tribe used to worship a mask, some shrine where they light incense and candles. And sure, they are forms of idolatry. They, but they come from cultures that are, that are so foreign to ours, I think. And so we think, well, there's no idols in England. Nothing we worship like that, is there? But Samuel, the way he links idolatry in our passage, he links it to Israel wanting another king. They want not God to be their king, but someone else, a human, someone that they can see and touch. That's what Samuel calls idolatry. And our rebellion today against God is similar. At its heart, it's not trusting God to be our king. That's idolatry. Not trusting him to be a good king, to be sufficient, to be merciful enough, to be powerful enough to defeat our enemies to satisfy us, not believing that he's enjoyable or or worthy of giving up everything for. We don't think he's a treasure that we'd sacrifice our life over. We don't think that he's big enough to, to thrill us for a million years and then 10 million more. Is your God big enough that you can't wait to be in his presence for eternity? Worthy of surrendering your whole life to, of serving him with all your heart? That's what he calls us to. Or do you turn aside to, to useless idols? You know, you start pursuing this, this temporary buzz of pleasure now. Rather than thinking our King Jesus and his ways are worth more. And we can make idols, therefore, out of almost anything. Whether it's just looking for more likes on an Instagram post. Or maybe the cheap thrill of a porn video. The excitement of making that sale at work. You know, working late rather than spending time with your family. Filling my life with experiences and, and gadgets. Or maybe just anxiously trying to control every part of my life so that I turn into this big ball of stress and, and I flinch at any little sign of risk around me. At the heart of all these attitudes are, are is idolatry. It's wanting something else to be my king. And if you, were the, if you were to hold any of these things up though and I'd say, well, is this your king? Do you value this more than Jesus? Well, we'll say, well, no, of course I don't. 
Do you love this? Do you love porn? Do you love popularity? Do you love power? Do you love presence? Do you love perfection or praise or peace or anything else more than him? And we say, no, I love Jesus. Of course I do. But the reality, I think, is that our actions often speak much louder than our words. If Jesus is our king, why do you obsess about what anyone else thinks about you? Why do I keep going back to that thing that I think will satisfy me? You know, to that place that makes me feel so good. Well, we go back because we don't think that Jesus' way is best. And the world is going to promise you so much. It's going to promise you pleasure and comfort or relationships or authority or success, holidays, influence. But verse 21, it says, don't turn aside after these useless idols. They can do you no good. They can't rescue you. They won't fulfill you. They won't give you that peace, the security you're really looking for. No king is going to give you that unless his name is Jesus. They're useless. Strong language that, that Samuel uses here. He's desperate to get the people of Israel off this merry-go-round ride that they're stuck on. And so let me get even more practical here tonight. If you were to admit, if you were to meet Jesus tonight, is there anything that you'd wished you'd done in your life? Or seen or, or bought or saw before you met him? Even right now, can you think of anything you'd rather do? Or are you so thrilled that you can meet him even tonight? How about this, young people, anyone here who's not married, please don't think that if you were to die tonight and meet Jesus without ever having sex, would you somehow have missed out in life? If you think that, then that's far too small a vision of Jesus and the joy there is of knowing him. There's nothing on earth that could ever trump being in the presence of the king who created everything. And so fearing God, serving him, keeping his commands, a life lived in devotion to Jesus' will, by God's grace, that will result in eternal pleasures the likes of this world can never know. What about money? If only I earned a bit more, life wouldn't be so much of a struggle. We could do this, we could go there, we could pay off this debt, or, or even give more to charity. We obsess about money. I find this a challenge myself. But I must see this as idolatry for what it is. And so I ask myself, have I ever lacked anything in life? No. I remember Philippians 4.19, and it says, God will meet your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. He will meet all your needs. I make an idol out of money and things when I forget the Lord's past faithfulness. You know, when I think that a healthier bank balance, that's the answer to my anxieties, to my stress. If you ask any person in the world what their ideal salary would be, what's every one of them going to say? A little bit more than I've got now. Every single person will say that, no matter how rich they are. And so that just shows you that money is not the answer, because nobody ever has enough. But it can so easily become an idol to us. And so how do we escape this merry-go-round of disaster, of, of anguish, of forgetfulness? Samuel says we need to fear God. Keep him first and serve and obey him. It's not rocket science. We wish there was some magical answer, but this is it. We delight in obeying him. But it's not that that saves us from disaster in itself. 
Verse 22 tells us that. It's God's pleasure. He's the one who makes us his own. That's grace. He chooses us first. And then he calls us to trust and follow him. But obedience is essential. It's not an optional and extra. Now, the Christian life is one spent in disciplined devotion and worship of our Savior. It's what he calls us to. It's what he called the people of Israel to. And so that's Samuel's big speech to the people. And we, I think, desperately need to hear this today ourselves. We live in an age of grace. But grace is not a free pass to live as we please, because God will forgive us and we can go round in the cycle once more. The last line in our passage makes it very clear. If you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. There's no two ways about this. We put God first in all that we do, and we remember his past faithfulness to us. Normally, we'd share communion here tonight. We did that this morning in our service. We remember the Lord's goodness to us. We have these moments, these acts, these symbols that remind us of God's grace to us. Last week, we had a baptism here in the evening, another symbol of God's saving power and and the testimony that Ben shared, this tangible event that Ben's going to remember for the rest of his life, that day when he stood in front of all his friends and said, I trust in Jesus. We have these moments that we are able to, to look back on and remember God's faithfulness to us. Maybe this day in in the life of the people of Israel will be one of those days. When all they thought they'd put their hope in, the crops and the food around them was destroyed. They thought they had a king who was going to look and lead them into great victory in battle. But God's the only king that they need. And he's the only king that we need here tonight. Nothing else in this world will ever satisfy you enough compared to knowing our Lord Jesus. He will meet all your needs. He is so merciful. He rescues us from our distress, from the sin, from the idolatry in our life, through Jesus. And therefore, he calls us to live a life of obedience to him. So we're going to talk about this around our tables now and get even more practical about what that looks like in our lives. What does obedience really look like? How do we remember these things practically? So hopefully some some questions, PJ, if you can put those up on the big screen, we'll um, we'll have, have these around our table. For the next 10 minutes or so, there's four questions there. And uh, they will just ask us to, to discuss what it means to follow the Lord Jesus today.